you have your Bible, find with me again the New Testament book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 8, and just hold your place there for a moment. Luke chapter 8. New York City is home to the largest number of migrants from the Ukraine in the United States. Over 150,000 Ukrainian migrants call New York City home. And when the war broke out in the Ukraine and when uh, Russia invaded, many of those Ukrainians in New York City hit the streets in protests, but just as many went to the churches and, and cried out to God and bowed their knee to him, many uh, hundreds uh, and thousands of Ukrainians in New York City are Christians, most of them Baptists or Pentecostals. And they came together in a cry of desperate faith to God. God, why is this happening? What's going on? God, help us and help our home country and our families during this time. Christianity Today interviewed many of those Christian Ukrainians in New York City uh, about two months ago. And they talked to them about their faith. Has this this, uh, bolstered your faith? Has it damaged your faith? How are you doing through this? And many of them shared the same expression of faith. They said, we don't understand what's going on. Many of us are saying to God, how can this be happening again? How is it that Russia is coming back? It it just seems like all of this is starting over again, and our families and our friends are suffering for it, and we are suffering for it, and we ask God why. But at the same time, they, they said, we know God is in charge. We know God that knows what he's doing. We trust God during this desperate hour. And as one Ukrainian said very clearly uh, and, and articulated very beautifully, we know that we trust Christ and no matter what happens. And he said, even a nuclear war, the end result for us will be the same. We will be home with Jesus Christ. We know what stands next for us. We know where we're going and we'll be home with him. That's where our hope is as well. Our hope is in Christ. No matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what's happening in the world, our hope is always in Christ. And you know that hope and you experience it even more when you have trusted him as your Savior and you you understand his sacrifice for you. I hope you do know that and you do understand that. Our hope is always in Christ. We've been in a message series called Faces in the Crowd and we're visiting with people along the way in the Gospel of Luke who have met Jesus in a crowd of other people, and they've been changed by Christ. Because as we learn, Christ pays attention to every individual, even in a crowd. He knows you. He knows your face. He knows your story. He knows your name. He pays attention to you right where you are. And that's what we're seeing in the Gospel of Luke as well. This morning's story is a little bit unique in that it's not just one story. It's two, two lives, two faces in the crowd brought together at the same place and time. And what they have in common is a faith that is desperate for a response from God. Both of these people have come to a place in their lives where they have no other options. They have nowhere else to go, no one else to call on. Money, religion, politics, power, education won't do it. They need Jesus. They need God and they need his response and they need him desperately. That's what they have in common. The scene takes place after Jesus has been on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, away from the the place of Galilee uh, and the town of Capernaum where he spent a lot of time. You'll remember that. He's gone to the other side in what's called a a Gentile region, that is non-Jewish. And while he was there, he exercised a host or a legion of demons from a man in an area called the Gerasenes or Gadarenes. 
as it's sometimes called in the Bible. And when he cast out those demons, they went into a herd of pigs. And by the influence of the demons, the pigs all launched themselves over a cliff and were killed. Well, this didn't sit well with the people on that side of the Sea of Galilee. And they became very angry and very upset. And they told Jesus to leave under no uncertain circumstances. Get out. We, we don't want you here. We don't want that happening. So Jesus got back in the boat. He crossed over to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, back over to the area of Capernaum and the fishing area. And when he arrives there, he receives just the opposite response. There is a crowd waiting for him. Now, we need to underscore in this story the crowd. The crowd actually plays a significant part of this story, as you'll see as we go along. Jesus is at the height of his popularity at this moment, in the area around Galilee, and they are waiting for him as he arrives. So look there with me in Luke chapter 8. We're going to start reading at verse 40. And, and as we read, I want you to, to have this in the back of your mind. Okay, just, just tuck this way in the back of your mind. A basic truth of human nature. Desperate faith has no, plays no favorites. Desperate faith... Uh, has no respecter of persons. When we are desperate, we are desperate. It doesn't matter who you are, what side of the aisle you're on, how much money you make or whether you have any at all, how many kids you have, whether you have any at all, who you're married to, not married, doesn't matter. Desperate faith responds always the same. It's faith in desperate need of God's response. So look here with me, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. This is what the Bible says. When Jesus returned, that is to, the, to that side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, that is going with Jairus, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from, uh, from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. So he took her by the hand and he called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astounded, but he instructed them not to tell anyone what had happened. God has preserved this story for us, which is one large story with two people in a crowd, uh, so that we can grasp the similarities rather than the differences between these two people. 
And the differences also help us understand the similarities. Take Jairus to begin with. The story starts out with a man named Jairus, a leader, we are told, a leader of the synagogue. That would be something like our deacons today. He's not a rabbi, but he's a respected figure in the community. And a synagogue was a teaching outpost for the Jews in every town, a very important place. So he had some kind of oversight of the synagogue, and he was a well-respected leader in the community. Probably everybody knew him when they saw him. They knew who Jairus was, especially if they attended that particular synagogue. This also means he was probably fairly well off, or at the very least, pretty comfortable in life. We also learn that he has a 12-year-old daughter, and this 12-year-old daughter is his only child. This 12-year-old daughter has become sick. Now, at 12 years old, this is important not only because she's his daughter, a human being, and, and she's sick and close to death, but because in their culture at that time, at 12 or 13 years old, the daughter would be preparing to be betrothed. And since she's the only child, it's very important to the family that she grows up and that she gets married and she has children to carry on the family legacy. But even with that aside, we find out that Jairus is desperate, suddenly desperate, because his only child, his 12-year-old daughter, is sick, close to death. Then we meet another person. Jairus is a named, respected leader of the synagogue. There's an unnamed woman, unknown to us, her name. For the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. And we're just told it's from an issue of blood or bleeding. It's some kind of, of illness related to bleeding. And, and many scholars believe it's related to her menstrual cycle, but that's not stated specifically in the text. And the Bible doesn't usually soft sell such things. If you don't believe me, just read the book of Leviticus. And you'll find out that the Bible's not typically tactful about those kinds of things. And maybe Luke was trying to be a little bit tactful. I don't know that the story is conveyed in Mark as well and Matthew. But what we do know is that it was an internal condition of bleeding that so far had been incurable. Not only had it been incurable, she was destitute. She had spent all her money for 12 years on trying to find a cure for her illness. And this was not just because of her illness, not just because she was sick, but because her illness, since it was an issue of blood of some kind and it was known in the community, it made her ritually and religiously unclean. She was not allowed at the synagogue. She was probably ostracized by her family. She had probably lost most of her friends. So on this particular day, she has for 12 years been suffering from an illness that has taken her life away. He's a leader of the synagogue. She's not allowed in the synagogue. He has a daughter he has enjoyed and been blessed by for 12 years. For 12 years, the same 12 years, she's been suffering, finding no cure, no help, spending all her money, now lives in poverty with probably no family to support her. But what they have in common is louder than what is different. What they have in common is on this day, their lives intersect with Jesus. And it happens because they are desperate. 
What they have in common is that desperation and desperate faith is no respecter of persons. It has nothing to do with whether you're a man or a woman or you're a parent or not a parent or your status in life, whether you're well-off and named or whether you're sick and unnamed. It has nothing to do. Desperate faith is desperate faith. And desperate faith always cries out, reaches out, seeks out Almighty God. Desperate faith pushes away all the externals and says, all I have now is God. I've done my best. I've tried everything I can do. All I have now is my faith in Him. That's what they have in common. And on this day, the desperate faith they share drives them to God in Jesus Christ and their lives intersect with Christ on the same day and they are never the same again. They get to see God work in their lives in ways they had never imagined simply because they wouldn't give up, because they would not quit, because they let go of every other effort or trial, and they said, no, I will trust God, and in my desperation, I will come to Him. That's what they have in common. It could be you're in here today, you're at home right now, and you find yourself at that place of desperation. And all you can do is say, God, I've tried everything I can do. I just depend on you. God, you decide. God, you help me. It's your desperate faith that will make the difference. I want us to break this down for just a minute. And I believe some of us in this room and at home will find ourselves in this story. You're either like Jairus or you're like this unnamed lady. But you find yourself in this story because you're in desperate need of an answered prayer. You're in desperate need of God's help at the moment. And I want you to hear closely, God knows who you are, sees your face, loves you right now, and he knows what you need. Let's go back to the story. I want you to look with me uh, at three facts about desperate faith. And instead of looking at, at each person and preaching them separately, we're going to look at the story in the big picture. And again, what they have in common is their lives intersect with Christ that day and how their desperate faith comes to Christ and he changes their lives. So look at these three facts with me about desperate faith. And the first one is that desperate faith seeks God's attention. Desperate faith seeks God's attention and therefore gets God's attention. Now, don't misunderstand. Whenever you pray in the name of Christ, God is listening to you. Whenever you have troubles, when you express your faith, when you're in here worshiping today, your faith doesn't have to be desperate for God to hear you and to be near you and to be close to you. But desperate faith pursues God. Desperate faith will not quit, will not give up. Desperate faith sets everything else aside and says, I must get to the master. Think of Jairus. Uh, the crowds are pressing in. And by the way, we're, we're told three times in this story something like the crowds are crushing, they are pressing, they are all around Jesus. Each time the same terminology means they are pressing in. Uh, when Jesus reached the shore, there, and, and this is an open area outside, right on the, the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a street where people have to press in. No, this is strictly because of his popularity. People are rushing to him. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. And they're rushing to the shore, and they're trying to get close to him. And he's pressed in on the crowd. And here comes Jairus. And he makes his way. He elbows his way through all of these people. He finally makes his way to Jesus. And he falls down at the feet of Christ. 
whether this was outright worship or not, it acknowledges that Jesus and Jesus alone is God in his midst. And he says, I need you. And he bows before God. This leader, this well-respected leader at the synagogue gives up all the, the pretense of propriety or power or position and falls down at the feet of the Savior and says, I need you. Nothing else will do. And notice right there in the story, nothing's recorded that Jesus says. He doesn't say anything. He just goes with Jairus, starts following him home. And then the worst thing Jairus could imagine happening happens right then. Someone else gets God's attention. You ever wondered if people interrupt your prayers while you're praying? That, that God's, some, somebody bounces in ahead of you. He's on his way. Jesus is right behind him. He's, he's pushing through the crowd, and he probably had friends and family helping him. Make a way, make a way, make a way. And then suddenly someone else gets God's attention. Someone seeking God just like he is. And this person does it just by touching the robe of Jesus. And Jesus stops in the crowd. Now just pause there for a moment, because I want to ask your you'd ask yourself something and pay attention to this. When was the last time you were that desperate for God's attention? When was the last time when, when there was no propriety, no position, no pride in your approach to God, you just fell down before him and said, God and God alone will do. There's nothing I can do. And there's nothing else I want. I just need Jesus. I just need Jesus. Michael Gerson uh, was a speechwriter for presidents in the past, and uh, he came down with a serious bout of depression. And just a couple of years ago, he wrote about this and he spoke about it. He gave a speech on his depression, and he's a believer, he, he's a Christian, and he said one of the things he, he learned in that was, uh, he said, I didn't need some other force of nature. I needed the face of God. I needed to know he was there. I was desperate for his attention. And God wants to remind you, when you seek his attention, you get his attention. You get his attention. Uh, Jairus, in, in that moment, probably thought, oh no, Jesus has stopped coming with me. But here's the thing. He has to trust Jesus to know what to do and, and to know the right timing and to answer the prayers God's way. And Jesus knows that. Jesus doesn't mind pausing and taking care of business elsewhere because God already knows what he's going to do. And because of the pause, because Jesus took care of someone else, Jairus is going to get to see even the greater power of God than he ever dreamed. He wants his child healed. He has no idea that once his child dies, Christ can resuscitate her, can raise her from the dead, just like he would have healed her had he been there. God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. And that brings us to the second thing we learn about desperate faith here. Desperate faith seeks God's attention and gets God's attention. Desperate faith trusts God's character. Desperate faith believes that God knows what God is doing. And I might feel desperate, but God is in charge. God knows what he is doing. And he knows the timing to do it. Jesus pauses and turns his attention to this woman. In the crush of the crowd, Jesus says what sounds to Peter like, uh, it's a little absurd. Jesus says, someone touched me. And Peter leans, leans in and says, yeah, 
They're touching us too. The crowd is crushing in. Of course someone touched you. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. Someone touched me with faith. And power, healing power has gone out of me. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying that God's power diminishes every time he uses it. The point of this is Jesus applies his power, God's power, and he knows when people of faith make contact with him. Someone touched me, and we're not moving until she comes forward. Also, by the way, don't get the impression Jesus is ignorant of who touched him. You remember when uh, God showed up in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and he said, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. He wanted Adam to admit where he was spiritually at that point. That's how God works. God is great at calling us out, isn't he? He doesn't let us hide in the crowd. And that's what Jesus is doing. All right, who touched me? Someone touched me. This woman is not even supposed to be there. If anyone knew she was there and the, and the crowd pressing in on her, she would make them ritually unclean. There would have been chaos, maybe a riot. She would have been hauled out of there in the midst of yelling and screaming. Had anybody known what she had, that she'd shown up, let alone elbowed her way through the crowd to touch the edge of the robe of Jesus in the crowd? But he makes sure that she does come forward. And she has to be staggered at the moment. After 12 years, instantly she was healed. That's the good news. And she's still waving from that, still trying to get her mind around what's just happened in her body, trying to contain her joy when she wants to shout, but she's got to get out of the crowd before anyone knows that she's there. And then... Second, suddenly, Jesus won't let her leave. So she comes forward. And notice this. What does she do? She falls at his feet. Oh, she knows this is God. There's no question. Jesus Christ is God. She knows what has just happened to her. She knows that her desperation has connected with the power of Almighty God in Jesus Christ. And it's her faith that was the conduit for that connection. And now she is healed. But see, Jesus doesn't want to just leave it there. He doesn't want her to go out. He, doesn't, he doesn't, not only wants to heal her, he wants to make her whole. He wants to restore her to her community. He wants to bring her back. So she falls at his feet and she confesses what she has done. And, she, and Jesus says daughter. Did you get that? Daughter. He's on his way to heal someone else's daughter that in truth is God's daughter also. And he says to her, you're my daughter too. Your faith has not healed you. Your faith has saved you. That's the literal term. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. And you have to picture standing up and the crowd parting to watch this woman that they have ostracized for 12 years now healed, leaving in peace because she's been restored, made whole, and healed. Trust God's character. God knows what he's doing. He knows what you need even more than you know what you need. 
He knows the healing you need, the restoration you need, the leadership you need, the resources you need, the help you need. Cry out to him in desperate faith. Reach out to him in desperate faith. Fall down before him in desperate faith and trust the character of God because he never changes. He always loves you. He never lies to you. And his desire is to make you whole. But trust him. He makes the decisions. And he knows what comes next. Then third, desperate faith experiences God's power. Desperate faith experiences the power of God. She is set free to go on. He turns to follow Jairus again. And that's when someone comes from his house, the synagogue leader's home. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Don't bother the master anymore. Your, your daughter's dead. Now, this is the first of four times from here to the end of the story we are reminded the girl is dead. But Jesus uses a euphemism, common in the day, but significant for believers in Christ. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And to the crowd of mourners that are there, who gathered to mourn her death, they're just now arriving because she's just died. Because of that, they laugh at him. But, but see, he's God. He knows. In the hands of God, death isn't even permanent. As believers know, and the Bible uses this euphemism frequently, when you die in Christ, it's as if you're sleeping till God wakes you up again. It's as if that's just momentary because you're going to rise from the grave. Her resuscitation uh, reminds us of the resurrection. Resuscitation means that person Jesus raises at that moment, Lazarus, this young lady, they're going to die again, but the next time around it'll be resurrection for eternity. So Jesus goes with him and brings into the room, as Jesus would often do, his three best friends, as close as three, Peter, James, and John, and mom and dad, and they come in, and with a word, Jesus just says, child, get up. Now, you got to know mom was a little startled. She wasn't in on all this other stuff. She didn't see the woman healed. She, she just thought, and she thought Jesus was too late. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever felt like in your prayers, well, it's too late. God, God's too late. Nothing can happen now. <laughs> oh, you don't have any idea what God can do. And she must have woken up, as children often do, hungry. Because Jesus said, hey, you need to feed this little thing. But don't rush out in the streets and tell everybody about this. I'll just be on my way. Desperate faith experiences God's power. It's on God's terms. God gets to decide what he's going to do. It's on his terms. But desperate faith experiences God's power. So do you trust God? And that's really the question here. Do you trust him for what you don't understand? Do you trust him in your desperation? Do you trust him enough to push aside all the, 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 the pretense and the power and the position, all the things you've been relying on? And I'm, I'm not saying don't take your medicine. I'm just saying do you, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to say, God, in my desperation, no matter what, I trust you? Jesus says, just like he says to the daughter he has just healed, he says to this daughter, your faith has saved you. Same word, same meaning. Both of them encountered the most powerful, gracious power of God to save 
a person. A lot of times we think we know what we need. That's what we're praying for, but God knows what we really need. And what we need more than anything is to be saved in Christ. What we need more than anything is to grab the edge of his robe, to fall on our knees, to cry out, nothing else will do but you. And whatever you decide, God, my trust is in you and your character. I know that you love me, and I know I can trust you. So I come to you in my desperation. I call out to you with my request. But God, I know you love me. I know you love me. In 1928, a young, a young girl named uh, Marianne Bird was born in New York, and she was born with several birth defects and, and problems, many of them visible outwardly, including a crooked nose that appeared broken, scars and, and, and marring on her face, a cleft palate. She had bent feet, had trouble walking, and she described her own voice as she grew as a little girl and, and began to speak. She grabbed her, uh, described her own voice uh, as gravelly and hard to understand and mispronounced words frequently. Well, you can imagine... As Marion Bird went into school as a child, other children were merciless in their bullying and teasing of her. And, and she would write later in a book called The Whisper Test, she would write uh, that sometimes children would ask her, what happened to your face? And, and look at you, you know, why, why are you, did you, what happened to you? And she said she would make up things like I fell on a piece of glass because she always felt like that was better than saying I was born this way. When she reached second grade, she writes that uh, they had in, in the schools, and they had done it for a couple of years, annually they had what they called the whisper test. And the whisper test was fairly simple. The students would come up one at a time, and they would stand over to the side, and they would cover up one ear, and the teacher would whisper a word or a phrase, and they were supposed to whisper it back. If they heard the word or phrase, they were supposed to whisper back, and that was their hearing test. And she said in second grade she had a, a teacher named Mrs. Leonard, a wonderful, cheerful little lady uh, that just loved children, and she connected with Mrs. Leonard pretty well during that time. And then the day came for the whisper test. And she said her turn came, and she came up front, and Mrs. Leonard said, stand over to the side and, and cover up your ear and, and whisper back to me, say back to me what I whisper to you. Now, she said typically what the teacher would whisper would be something mundane and basic that they could easily whisper back, the sky is blue, I like your shoes, and the child would, would say it back after the teacher whispered that to her, and she was standing up there with her ear covered, and she was waiting for the whisper test, when she heard Mrs. Leonard say, I wish you were my daughter, and she got to say out loud what Mrs. Leonard had just said. And the whole class knew Mrs. Leonard had just said to Mary Ann Bird, I wish you were my daughter. You belong to God and Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. He knows what's best for you. The world can be pretty merciless. God is not. God loves you. Trust him. Trust his character. And depend on him. Hey, can I ask you a question in this story? Which one of the two characters are you most like? The lady that's been suffering quietly for 12 years? Or maybe you don't, it's not a medical problem. Maybe it's that you're lonely. 
you're desperate in need of help and direction. Or, or maybe you're more like Jairus. So people know your name, but they don't know your suffering. Everything materially seems fine with you, but on the inside, you're, you're, you're having a hard time. You're desperate. Remember, whichever one you are, what you have in common, desperate faith. And that Jesus knows who you are and what you're going through. What you have in common is when you come to Christ, it'll change your life. And what you need more than anything is salvation in Jesus. He knows what you need. Trust him. Trust his character. Experience his power when you trust him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. Inside, nobody looking around. You do it at home as well, in your living room or by the kitchen table, wherever you are. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. I'm going to pray first for those of us well, for all of us this morning. And I'm going to ask you a question. I want you heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. I want to pray for you. God knows your answer to this. It's, this isn't for me. It's for you to acknowledge this to God. Are you in that place today of desperate faith? You've been trying to fix things, trying to pray this, pray that. Do it, but you would just say, God, all I need is you. And I'm desperate, God, for something to change in my life. If that's you, just lift your hand up. I want to pray for you. Do it at home also. Lift your hand up. So God knows who you are. God knows what you're talking about. Thank you so much. You can put your hand down. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know the cry of our hearts. And God, maybe some of us didn't acknowledge our faith as desperate today, but it might be tomorrow. Maybe we just say, God, there's there's a a hurt, a heartache, a trouble, a need in my life. I'll bring that to you today. You're the only one that can answer that prayer. God, but for those who said yes, I've got this desperate faith. I just want to reach out and grab his robe. I want to run to him and fall at his feet. God, we do that today and we plead for help. We plead for your power. We plead for you to do what only you can do, God, and we trust you for that. We trust your character. We believe you, God. And we know you know what's best for us. So, Father, I pray for those who would say, yes, today I have desperate faith. God, answer our prayers in keeping with your will. We give that to you. No pretense, no position. Not trying to do anything on our own, God. We just give all that to you today. But, Father, there may be some in this room and some at home as well that say, I need to be saved. I need Christ today. I need to know when I leave this place, the words of Jesus are echoing in my mind. Your faith has saved you. And I can go in peace because I know that I've been cleansed of my sin and I've been forgiven. I've been accepted by Christ in salvation today. Father, I pray for those who need Christ. I pray for us today, Father. And I pray this prayer with those who would trust Christ as their Savior today. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. I've tried. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be religious. But God, I know I can't save myself. And today, I'm desperate to be saved, to be forgiven of my sin, to start over fresh with Christ. So Jesus, I ask in faith, come into my heart and into my life. I believe you died on the cross for me, and I know and I believe you're alive today. So Jesus, cleanse me of sin, forgive me and give me a home in heaven. And Jesus, I repent of my sin, and I will follow Christ today. Lord Jesus, for all of us today, we turn to you. For all of us, I pray, God, and we turn to you with our needs and our burdens today. And we praise you, God, for answers to prayer. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray.